Hello, and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 415th show of ROI, and our guest for today is Dr. Andrew Swordson, postdoctoral researcher in human origins and material culture studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And we're going to be talking about the ancient history of fire. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet. The show's theme is Kayla's theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsapital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Denarin, and today we'll be talking about the ancient history of fire with Dr. Andrew Sorensen, postdoctoral researcher in human origins and material culture studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Welcome to the show, Andy. Can you start us off by giving us some background into what makes the use of fire so important? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, I'm really happy to be here. I'm being an Iowa native myself. This is a small homecoming for me, so I'm, I'm quite excited for this show. Um, so, yeah, fire, it's sort of one of those all-encompassing technologies that it, it has, it, it's sort of in all aspects of modern living. Um, these days, it's sort of hidden away. Um, you know, it, it's in your internal combustion engine, it's in your oven, it's in far far-off um, power plants, you know, generating electricity and whatnot. So today it, it, it's still a very relevant uh, resource. And, and as an archaeologist who specializes in pyrotechnology, I sort of want to look into the origins of this technology. When did we start using it? And then sort of just the progress through time over the past, you know, at least 2 million years of, um, of this of this resource and how, how people sort of eventually came to know fire, use it, maintain it, and ultimately manufacture it themselves. Okay, so Andy, let's start with the beginning. Um, there's a fair bit of controversy, or at least there used to be, on when fire usage actually started. Um, there isn't a lot of, of um evidence in in some of those early but it goes back a long time so you can you talk to us a little bit about when we think fire usage first starts and what kind of evidence we're using to to sort of support that claim sure well i mean i can assure you that it is still a bit of a controversy there is there is a lot of debate as to when we sort of began our love affair with fire and i mean there's the there's sort of four main stages of fire use in human prehistory. So you have this early stage of habituation to natural fire, so learning to understand fire. And, you know, this is, this is going to be, you know, um, early, uh, uh, you know, sort of our, our, our ancestors, uh, common ancestors with apes who were on the, the, the savannah in Africa who were becoming accustomed to fire being prevalent in the landscape, just as it is today in Africa. And they sort of learn to understand it and how it functions. And you still see this even in modern apes with chimpanzees being able to, you know, um, uh, vocalize or actually hang out nearby active burning fires and even vocalize um, when the wind changes and the, and the fire starts moving towards them. They, they sort of have an understanding of how fire works. And so, but then there's this fateful step as to when people start, you know, using fire to their advantage. And, you know, timing-wise, it's, 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 um, 
it's a, still a bit nebulous, but you know, we have to think at least two million years ago, um, early humans and even earlier species like Australopithecines would have perhaps taken advantage of recently burned areas to, to do some fire foraging. So they would uh, go through a, a recently burned area and be able to collect perhaps animals that were uh, parboiled in uh, a wildfire and, and actually start incorporating a little bit of cooked meat into their diet. They could uh, forage for fresh, fresh uh, plant shoots or burned or, or cooked nuts, etc. And so they become comfortable with fire and, and, and recognizing its benefits. But then eventually somebody decided to sort of harness fire. And so basically collecting it from natural resource, natural wildfires, and then, you know, uh, maintaining it in place to either cook food or, or stay warm or even carrying it with them to more favorable location where they could then maintain it and use it for different purposes. And we sort of assume that is happening, like I said, around 2 million to uh, 1.5 million years ago. And it's around 1.5 million years ago that you start seeing these early archaeological sites that seem to have um, evidence of these combustion features, sort of localized fire events surrounded by um, uh, stone tools or uh, animal bones, some of them even uh, exhibiting uh, cut marks from butchery with stone tools. And so that's when we really start seeing um, occasional uh, evidence of fire um, in association with archaeological sites. And this remains quite sporadic for the next almost million years. You have a number of sites in Africa, Asia, um, even Europe, um, that have some evidence of fire, but it's not super prevalent. And it's around 400,000, 300,000 years ago with sort of the, with Neanderthals coming onto the scene that you start seeing fire traces appearing much more regularly. Okay. So now that humans have fire in our timeline uh, and human ancestors, how are they using it? Are they using it first off just to cook? Are they using it for security? Are they using it to produce um, fire-hardened tools, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, there is a laundry list of uh, uses for fire that we, you know, people still use for, use fire for today. But uh, we can assume that uh, these early humans would very quickly see the advantages of having fire around for some of the things you, you said. Indeed, it's not only just providing um, extra warmth when it's cold out or extra light to lengthen the day, but it could be used to um, protect from predators at night. So you huddle around the fire and maybe the big cats um, skulking around won't come as close because of that fire. Uh, but, I mean, you can use it for cooking, um, which was a, a big um, uh, technological change early on um, that we can discuss at some point here, some of the ramifications of that. But you can um, use it to the smoke to repel insects, because those can be pretty nasty different times of year. Um, you can get rid of your garbage. You can um, use it to burn the landscape to make it more... Um, more pro to sort of create these burn patches that are attractive to um, prey, prey species that they could then hunt. Um, so there's it, there's a lot of there's a lot of different uses for fire. But when you look at archaeological sites, usually um, we're assuming that they're mainly using it to cook food, because um, you do find a lot of evidence of um, of heated bone fragments, um, 
uh, in association with these uh, these fireplaces. And so that that's probably the primary reason that there's all, like I said, this whole laundry list of other uses that would have been handy to these early humans. Andy, you, you talked about habituation to fire, and that's one of the questions that's always intrigued me. Um, animal species in general don't like fire. They, they tend to stay away from it. Um, they, they, you know, so there's, there's something, you know, that's instinctual about avoiding fire. Uh, and yet our hominid ancestors at some point overcame that to the point where they could actually manipulate it, take advantage of it. Um, and so, and you may not be able to answer this, but I'm just curious what your speculation is. Do you think that there was something going on in terms of brain development and, and things like that, that may have been either driving that, you know, that, that, that skill set then allowed for other things or a byproduct of brain development that's going on? Because something certainly seems to have separated our ancestors from the rest of nature in terms of, of the way that we manage fire. Sure. Um, so the, the, the second point first, um, yeah, there is this kind of big chicken or the egg um, issue with the, the, the link between fire use and hominin brain size. And so you have researchers like Richard Rangham and Rachel Carmody who have done, uh, who have written extensively about this idea that, that cooking, which sort of makes food more easily chewable and more digestible, um, basically frees up a lot more calories that can, um, that you don't need to use on, you know, chewing tough meat. Um, and it's easier for the gut to digest. So all those extra calories and extra energy can be redirected towards the brain. So they sort of suggest that it was the, um, the fire use came first, and then that incorporation of cooked food would have allowed for a larger brain. And this is, this is sort of the, the most accepted uh, idea, but there are a number of challenges to this because sometimes the timeline doesn't really line up uh, perfectly well with when you start seeing larger brain sizes and say Homo erectus, and when you start seeing this early evidence of fire, which seems to come a little bit, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand years after the initial appearance of Homo erectus. But again, fire is notoriously ephemeral in the archaeological record. It doesn't always preserve very well, so it, it's very difficult to really draw that line. So, um, whether or not there was a cognitive leap um, that led these, these, uh, these early humans to sort of be more brave with collecting fire and, and utilizing it, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it also could be linked to, it's also, you know, body hair is also a question, you know. It's like you, you think that apes would be less inclined to use fire actively because if those sparks jump onto your fur, you're going to have a rough day. But if you perhaps had already lost some of your body hair and, put, you know, uh, you start walking on two feet, it frees up your hands to carry that fire and less fear of your fur starting on fire. So there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say when things came first. But real quickly, um, on your first point about animals being sort of afraid of fire, I think this is actually a bit of a, uh, not in, you know, it's not entirely accurate because you have, lots of cases of animals in the wild being drawn to fire and interacting with fire in very active ways and, and, and do not actually show uh, a fear. You have, and there's, there's evidence of 
deer who are getting caught in a wildfire situation, being able to figure out where the weakest point in sort of a, a, a line of fire moving towards them and jumping straight through the fire. Because once you get past that fire, that fire line, then it's, uh, it's warm and it's charred, but it's, you're not, you might get singed on your way through, but you will live to, 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 you know, to eat and graze another day. You also have lots of animals that follow waterways during fires. They know how to avoid it, and, and panic isn't really a major thing. And also you have these uh, various raptors, these birds in Australia and, and also possibly in Africa, but definitely Australia, that have been seen picking up um, burning twigs, flying through the air, dropping them in new patches of grass, and that's going to cause a new fire that causes all the insects to fly up in the air, and then they go and just swoop in and eat all of these insects that are flying around. So they're actively starting new fires in order to predate on these insects or small animals that run scurrying away. So um, there's quite a bit of evidence of animals not being as afraid of fire as we think they were. Uh, so early humans with their bigger brains and just also, with, like I said, with chimpanzees being able to interact, like sitting 10 meters from a, a, fire, a fire front and not really just, just doing their normal thing and moving when they had to. So I think that's, um, that, that sort of shows that they were cognitively capable of, of winning to become comfortable with fire and use it to their own advantage or pretty early on. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Andrew Sorensen, postdoctoral researcher in human origins and material culture studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and we're talking about the ancient history of fire. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. And Rick, since you are such a fiery personality, why don't you start us off? That's such a hot concept. <laughs> hey, Andy. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much. I have a question. You, you mentioned in the first segment about uh, some of the uses, uh, particularly one that probably had more uh, greater impact on on human development was the figuring figuring out how to cook meat with fire. Uh, it, what kind of evidence is did, have you found uh, that uh, it was either a deliberate uh, cognitive acts or it was accidental? Did they come running across? Uh, burned antelope or bears and uh, after a forest fire or a range fire and they they could smell the bacon so to speak and thought <laughs> let's give it a try but how did they how do you feel they figured out how to cook with fire i think i think it's exactly as you say i mean during this sort of habituation phase where you know 
they become comfortable with it in their environment, and they, they will happen upon the occasional unfortunate uh, animal that gets caught in these wildfires. And they're going to be partially cooked. And, I mean, studies have shown that uh, apes and other animals tend to oftentimes, when given the option of selecting between cooked food or raw food, they actually, or, or meat specifically, they actually go for the, the cooked meat because not only does it have that nice barbecue flavor, but it's also easy to chew. And um, it, it, it's, it's something that they would have probably, uh, you know, appreciated uh, when they could get their hands on it. And so then, you know, you start drawing those lines. It's like, well, okay, I really like this cooked meat. Um, what if I were to, say, snatch a bit of fire, like a burning branch from this, this, uh, this wildfire, and go start my own fire, and then something that we are able to catch and kill, I can just put it on my own fire and, and cook it myself. And so there's gonna, it's gonna, this is going to be probably a fairly long and drawn-out process with just uh, uh, slow, slowly incorporating more meat cooked food, etc., into the diet to the point where eventually they're going to become, you know, a bit more dependent on this this type of food. And so, I mean, it's like, it's like air conditioning in the modern era, you know? It's like you don't need it, but having it there as a, a sort of a comfort to make things a bit nicer, you, you still want it. You're still going to pay that bit of extra on your utility bill to have that cooler temperature in the, in the uh, Iowa summers. So it's like they didn't need the fire per se, but it's, it's one of these um, these nice uh, luxuries that they're willing to go uh, expend a little extra effort to, to collect and maintain and use for this uh, nice uh, barbecued meal, I think. Well, and continuing on that topic of cooking, when do we start to see methods other than roasting happen? Huh. That is a good question. That's, that's another uh, difficult thing to really uh, center in on. I mean, roasting is, of course, um, kind of the easiest and uh, most logical early method of cooking. Because it's just you fire there, you put it in the fire, you, 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 cook, you cook it to what, where you want it, and then you can eat it. Um, more complex methods of, say, um, burying, um, burying a... Uh, uh, a carcass and then throwing in uh, uh, hot ash and glowing embers and uh, letting it slow cook over time. I mean, that seems to be a much later phenomenon. You also have the idea of boiling. I mean, boiling could have been a very um, early technology, but unfortunately, it's one of those invisible technologies because you have to think. Um, there's a researcher uh, out of Michigan, John Speth, who had a really lovely paper about this idea of early cooking in prehistory and how it's very possible to, you know, boil water, or at least heat it up to a temperature sufficient to cook some food um, in, a, in a hide. You just suspend a hide over the fire, and it's sort of like the whole Cub Scout uh, or Boy Scout trick of boiling an egg, hard-boiling an egg in a Dixie cup on the fire. The, the temperature of the cup will stay at around 100 degrees wherever that water is touching the sides. The, the upper rim will burn away, but that water will boil and keep the cup intact. You could do similar things with hides. You could do similar things with um, birch bark containers. And so this could be a very early technology that we just have a very difficult time discerning from the archaeological record. Um, later on, um, you know, within the last... Uh, tens of thousands of years, you do see 
um, evidence of people throwing rocks into fires to heat them up, and then you transfer those hot rocks into, say, again, like a hide, maybe in a or in a uh, in a dugout uh, hole lined with a hide or something to keep water in. You throw those rocks into the water, and it's a very quick way of boiling the water. And that create that creates archaeological uh, archaeologically visible signatures of these fire cracked rocks because that that heat stress of getting hot and cold very quickly sort of will shatter them in, into smaller pieces. And you see that much more um, abundant. Those are much more abundant as you get much later on in prehistory. So roasting seems to have been the uh, primary method of cooking for an exceptionally long period of time. Okay, Andy, so let's move a little forward in the timeline. Um, you talked about earlier that we really start to see a lot more evidence of intentional fire use as we get into um, Neanderthals and sort of that 400,000, 300,000, 200,000 range. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the archaeological evidence for that and and how things, you know, sort of where the technology's use has, has evolved at that point? Sure. Um, yeah, basically, um, there, you start just seeing more uh, hard features, combustion features, um, and, you know, heated, burned bone, uh, heated stone, like accidentally heated uh, pieces of stone that are scattered along an archaeological site. You see pre the presence of these various indicators of fire use um, increase quite a bit, like you said, after this 400 to 300,000 years uh, ago. And it, the question then is, is this due to these people just um, sort of becoming even more dependent on fire at this time? Or could it be related to um, uh, specifically Neanderthals, especially sort of developing the means to produce fire for themselves? So producing it artificially, either, you know, you, you have these, these two primitive, primary primitive methods of making fire, sort of the wood-on-wood -wood friction, which is sort of what you'd see in the old Looney Tunes cartoons where you're rubbing two sticks together to, uh, to uh, get a, uh, this pile of uh, heated wood powder that, that becomes incandescent and blows, or, uh, that you blow on to, to create a, an ember that you can make a fire from. But um, uh, and the other method is, is percussive fire making. So when you're using a piece of uh, flint uh, and striking a piece of pyrite, so fool's gold is, is pyrite, and that's going to create sparks. And this um, is sort of what I think is, one, is possibly the older method, at least in Europe among Neanderthals. Um, it's, uh, you do, there is some archaeological evidence earlier on, but we'll, we'll definitely get into that in a bit. I'm sure, because that's my sort of specialty. But, um, yeah, it, it, we think that, that this uptick in fire use might be related to beginning to be able to make fire for themselves. And that's a real turning point in, in our love affair with fire. Andy, just a quick follow-up. Does the fact that we're starting to use caves more often as we get into this time frame. Is that also helping to preserve some of the archaeological record? It's, you know, it's got to be easier to preserve something in the floor of a cave than it is out in the open, you know, terrain somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another, that's sort of another chicken or the egg situation. It's like, did the more extensive use of fire allow hominins to occupy caves more frequently because then they could sort of uh, chase out uh, other animals like cave hyenas or cave, uh, or cave bears, these other animals, these carnivores that like to, 
to live or hibernate in caves. Um, and indeed, once people started using caves a bit more often, that's, that does create a um, preservation bias because, as you insinuated, these caves act as sedimentary traps. So they are, they not only are they sort of infilling with sediment over time, which creates these nice, thick deposits of, of, of different stratigraphic layers, but yet they're also focal points in the landscape. So they're a place that people can sort of make a mental note of and return to time and time again. And so you're just going to have a higher prevalence of, uh, of artifacts and also um, fire evidence accumulating in these sites over time which does make it a bit more archaeologically visible. Okay, Rick. Andy, I'd opine that uh, it was fire first, then cave second, because when you walk into a dark area with a burning uh, bush, you can see that maybe it's a a 2,000-foot drop-off 10 feet into the darkness. So anyway, I I want (laughs) to – I was wondering, uh, you mentioned the flint and pyrite – uh, spark uh, creation for fire. Uh, how? Uh, when did that start? And did is it also the fact that they're now into caves that they're around igneous rock uh, that they can uh, uh, they found the material to make the flint and spark? Well, actually, I mean, flint is a sedimentary occurs sedimentary in sedimentary rocks, and and a lot of times. The, the best pyrite that you can find for making fire is also forming in uh, chalks and limestones. So that's um, possibly one of the reasons why you start seeing the earliest evidence of fire production in this uh, in in sort of France and uh, Southwest Europe because there's all this karstic um, limestone and caves um, where these sort of um, these minerals that provide not only their, their stone tools but uh, also these, uh, these uh, pyrite nodules that you can use to make sparks, that's probably why you start seeing it in this area a bit more and earlier on. And so as far as the timeline, again, it's a, it's a bit nebulous. I mean, my research is actually focused on this question as to when did people start using this technology to make fire. And you have very small blips on the radar possibly appearing as early as around that 400,000 year timeline where you might find a piece of pyrite um, in the arche- in an archaeological context. It doesn't look like it's been used, but I mean, it, it's there. It shouldn't be there. It's something that had to have been brought to this archaeological site. And, um, but that's, there's one blip on the radar around 400, 420,000 years ago. And after that, it's, it, it, you don't see it. I mean, pyrite has a problem with preservation as well. It tends to decay when exposed to the elements, especially if you break it open to use it. It, it, it could, it, it's going to disappear um, relatively quickly if it's not preserved in the right uh, context. But um, with my research, um, I was able to identify um, microscopic traces on stone tools, so using this, te- this, this um, technique called microware analysis, where you use a microscope to look at the tools and compare these microscopic traces, these scratches, these polishes that are formed on a tool when it's being used, and comparing that to pieces that I've recreated experimentally for different tasks, and sort of do these one-to-one comparisons and see, you know, how do these traces um, look in comparison to, say, fire-making experiments. And with my and during my PhD research, 
I was able to identify a few dozen uh, stone tools from uh, around France that date to around 50,000 years ago, which is still quite late in in uh, regards to the you know Neanderthals being around. But at least it's a nice starting point. But found a do- I found a dozen tools that have these microscopic traces that look very similar to what I can reproduce experimentally during fire making. And so this gives us um, not only the oldest good evidence of fire production, but I, I think it's sort of a, I think it's a, a starting point. Because I think as more and more people start to look for this evidence, um, uh, you're going to see it, you know, claw back in time bit by bit. And uh, I think it's, I think it's probably even earlier than that. But um, when exactly is still, you know, it's still up in the air. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 415th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Andrew Sorensen, postdoctoral researcher in human origins and material culture studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And we've been talking about the ancient history of fire. The history buff for today's show was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Pazutu proverb, Hotsa Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>